Hello, church family. Um, today we're going to look at Acts chapter 23, verse 12, to the end of the chapter. Uh, one of my favorite books I've been reading, uh, with one of the guys I'm discipling, is, uh, is this book by Piper. It's called Providence. And it's really my favorite word in the last two years, particularly about you know, with all of the things with COVID and everything else. Uh, even though things are dire, there's just this amazing aspect of the Lord in which he can providentially move things in ways that just seems so random in our eyes, but it's actually just normal circumstances that can ultimately uh, grow the believer and glorify the Lord. I think that's like what's going on here. When we think about providence or even the workings of the Lord, sometimes we think of the working of the Lord and just the miraculous, the supernatural type things, but it's actually the most providential things that are more amazing, right? Because the supernatural things, you know, they just defy, um, the, the realms of natural order. Um, but that's, you know, that's, that there's nothing, you know, it just goes against reality. The providence is just like God micromanaging every little detail, uh, so that everything fits together. Uh, if you think like playing a Rubik's cube is difficult, uh, then it just, it just blows my mind about how God can control every little thing and it all works harmony in harmony with one another. Here, I think that's the lesson that we learned here. Um, Acts chapter 23, verse 12 to the end of the chapter, um, you know, the name of God is not, uh, doesn't show up. I mean, uh, Christ shows up in chapter 23, verse 11, where he tells Paul to take courage as he's in prison. But the rest of the chapter is just is seemingly one event that is random after another. And it's all in, um, used to fulfill God's promise here at the end of verse 11 where he said that he will go to Rome. I remember uh, chapter 22, really 21 to 23 up to this point, Paul's in prison by um, uh, he, the, the Roman guards took him in prison because the Jews were just beating him up and they wanted to know what was going on. The Roman guards uh, you know, didn't know why and, and they just for sake of protecting Paul, they, they put him in prison uh, to basically keep him there for a while. And uh, and the Jews wanted to get rid of him. There was a different uh, groups that were against him, mainly because he taught Jesus Christ. Uh, they kept trying to find uh, ways to get him killed, and then the, the Romans didn't understand why. You know, they were just like, what's wrong with that? He didn't actually break any rules. They even thought that he was one of the assassins. Uh, I guess in that time there was, a, there was some sort of uprising in Egypt. They thought they were one of those people, but it wasn't. And uh, Paul tries to share the gospel with him. And this whole time, still, the Romans had no clue why Paul is hated so much. And that makes sense because, you know, the Romans have no interest in the spiritual things. And they see that this is an issue that's not like a civil issue, but rather a religious one. So they kind of just back away. But they, they you know, obviously because Paul's Roman, they can't just allow the Jews just to kill him. So here, from uh, uh, verse 12 to the end of the chapter, we again see just how God is uh, providential through random events that will ultimately fulfill his purposes. And then in that, we can rejoice knowing that God is doing the same thing in our life as well. That in our life, from the smallest detail, God is in absolute control. Uh, and we may not see it, we may not understand it, but yet in those uh, providential moments of life, God has uh, revealed himself to be a faithful and good God. So it's like a verse 12. When it was... 
day. This is right after, uh, you know, the, the day after, um, you know, Jesus encourages him when Paul is in prison. Uh, the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves under an oath, saying that they would neither eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. Now, this is the extreme type of vow here. They're just basically um, so upset at Paul, and they hated Paul so much that they, these religious people were just plotting to kill um now, Paul, again, this is no different from the way that they treated Jesus. They would try to find a scheme, some sort of secret way to get Jesus, get rid of Jesus, and now they're doing the same thing to Paul. And we understand even, too, the reason why they're doing this is because they, they, they ultimately do hate Jesus. Jesus had told the disciples that they hate you because they hated me first. And these Jewish people here <coughs> made a vow. Uh, they made a vow that they would not eat or drink until uh, they, they until they kill Paul, which is a, you know, which is an insane kind of vow, because then, you know, what if they don't kill Paul? That means eventually Paul just needs to wait them out, and all the Jews, all these Pharisees, uh, or at least this group of people, will just, will just die, because, you know, they die without sustenance. So there's an urgency here, though. Like this blood vow that these Jews are making, like, okay, we are going to not, we're going to make sure we get things done. So the idea is as time progresses, we're going to just become more and more desperate, because they want to, they want Paul to be gone. That they're basically saying that if they don't get Paul, then they might as well die as well. Verse uh, 13, there were more than 40 who formed this plot. Um, again, you can see how the religious group here has gone so depraved. Right? Even in the Old Testament laws, they understood that you're not allowed to kill. You know, there's, there's like, there, there's a, an eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. This is they just threw all that out the window because they wanted to keep their power, and they know that when Paul's preaching the gospel, it diminishes their influence on the people. So they're planning this with intent to kill. They came to the chief priests and elders and said, "We have bound ourselves with a solemn oath to taste nothing until we kill Paul." Um, Verse 15, now therefore you and the council notify the commander to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case by a more thorough investigation. And we, for our part, are ready to slay him before he comes near the place. So this is, you know, they're basically trying to like make a lie. Say, hey, just get him out, get him out in the open. And then once he's there, we'll get him. You know, there's a reason why in, you know, when presidents travel, they have like, you know, eight, like the motor, uh, uh, motorcade. I had a friend that was in one of these motorcades when the president was driving around. He was part of the, um, the press corps. And it's, he said, he, he shared, it was insane. Like there's a whole bunch of cars and they're constantly moving back and forth because, you know, the president technically is out in the open somewhere in all these vehicles. And, um, in order to protect them, there's this constant movement all over, like cars are switching lanes and last minute they'll change directions and un- enter secret underground paths and everything like that uh, to, to, to protect, um, you know, the president. And here, uh, they're just trying to draw him out. The idea though is like, even though like certain people are protected, there's at least some exposure. And that's what these, uh, Jews are thinking. Like, if we can just get Paul out of the barracks, as long as we get him out open, we can take care of him. Verse 16, but the son of of Paul's sister heard of the ambush of their ambush, and he came and entered the barracks and told Paul. Now this is this is actually the most fascinating verse to me because up until this point, and, and from what I've understood throughout scripture, Paul never references family at all. I mean, it's possible that he was married, um, and I think he was married at some point, but and, but there there isn't much other relative that he speaks about. And I think that part of the reason is that he was from a very strict Jew, uh, Pharisee, uh, Judaism. There's a chance that they've all already denied him. They've all rejected 
uh, Paul and then basically told him that he's out of the family. Uh, and, you know, we understand that even in modern day Judaism and Islam type religions, that the, if you convert to Christianity, you're basically dead to them. I think this is uh, one of those rare instances where, you know, his nephew shows up. Do I think his nephew is a believer? I don't know. It doesn't say, but, but you know, Paul's nephew here uh, just happened to be there. Now, um, it, does, it doesn't explain why he was there. Maybe he just happened to walk by. But again, uh, it just he was just there. He heard all this, and he wants to protect his uncle. Verse 17, Paul called one, um, sorry, uh, yeah, so he can't, so this, uh, Paul's nephew came, entered the barracks and told Paul, and Paul called one of the centurions to, uh, to him and said, lead this young man to the commander, for he has something to report to him. So he took him and led him to the commander and said, Paul, the prisoner called me to ask me to lead this young man to you, since he has something to tell you. The commander took him by the hand and stepping aside, began to inquire him privately, what is that you have to report to me? Now, it's implied just in the text that this Paul's nephew was probably a very young person. That's why he took him by the hand. And also at the same time, there's this, you know, this desperate need for him to get more information uh, about what's going on. Uh, again, the commander here had no idea why Paul's being uh, persecuted. Uh, he doesn't understand the religious implication. He just he just sees all this as child play. He doesn't know why. He's, and he sees uh, Paul's nephew, and Paul's nephew has some sort of news. He asks him, what, what is it? What do you want to tell me? Verse 20, and he, and this kid, Paul's nephew, is, is not mentioned by name. Which, again, I hope to see this kid one day in heaven and see it. Just like, wow, this, this Paul's nephew probably might have been a believer if he's willing to save Paul. He might have been just, you know, one of those uh, people that got converted. And I do believe since Paul is such a, you know, has such a heart for um, the Jews that he must uh, evangelize to his family. And there might have been those that rejected him, but there's also some that might have believed. And Paul's nephew might have been one of those people that believed. Verse 20, and he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down tomorrow to the council as though they were going to inquire some uh, what more thoroughly about him. So do not listen to them, for, for more than 40 of them are lying in wait for him who have bound themselves under a curse not to eat or drink until they slay him. And now they are ready and waiting for the promise from you. So the commander let the young man go and instructed him to tell no one of this. No one that you have notified me of these things. So again, the, this is um, this is a plot that was essentially was uncovered by uh, by Paul's nephew here, and the commander tells him to not tell anyone. And the idea is obviously because if the Jews know, then they can change the plan. And this is this very unique opportunity where the Lord is using this child to protect Paul, uh, and really in hopes that the gospel will continue to be made known throughout. Uh, the Roman guard. Um, so even future people got saved because of this offense. And, um, and yeah, the, he gets, you know, the commander is, is wise enough to say, okay, we need to not let them know, and but we need to act on it. Um, find, you know, we, we want to be ahead of them in that way. Verse 23, he called to them, he called to him two of us and said, get 200 soldiers ready by the third hour of the night to proceed to Caesarea with 70 horsemen and 200 spearsmen. So basically, he's like, get this whole group of people, army, to protect Paul. And this is, you know, God's divine provision and providence that Paul is going to be protected. Um, and why is all this important? Because he said that Paul was going to go to Rome at the end of verse 11. 
And Paul, if you've imagined, has no clue what's been happening. Like, he doesn't know how God is going to uh, bring him to Rome. He doesn't know any of this. And when his nephew appeared, it, it seems as though he's finally seeing the hand of God moving through everything. He, he gets it. He understands what's going to happen. He knows that he's going to escape somehow. And yet here, Paul's using this centurion, uh, using, yeah, using this, uh, this commander to just get a whole bunch of armies to protect him so that he can get out. Verse 24, uh, they were also providing mounts to put Paul on to bring safe, bring him safely to Felix, the governor. So this is fascinating because he's, you know, not only is he protected, but he gets, he doesn't even need to walk anymore. You know, Paul's beat up. He's like bruised and battered. And he, now he gets like this, uh, this almost like a royal type of treatment to get to uh, Felix, the governor. And he wrote a letter having this form. Now what is again fascinating about this is Luke is writing all this and somehow it seems that the Holy Spirit enabled him to know exactly what's in this letter. I don't believe that he actually like like got the scroll somewhere and then wrote, just copy word by word. I think the Holy Spirit just divinely inspired him to know exactly what was said. Uh, and this is what the letter says. There's, there's not much to say about this other than just the uh, um, the commander's perspective on all of this. Verse 25, he wrote a letter uh, having this form. Claudius Lysias to the most excellent governor Felix, greetings. When this man was arrested by the Jews and was about to uh, be slain by them, I came to them with the troops and rescued him, having learned that he was wrong. He was Roman. Now, obviously, this is actually not true and not factual. The only reason why he knew that he was Roman was after the fact, right? He, it's it shows kind of the humanity of, of people, right? Like, I don't think this is a contradiction in the way that you know some people say, "Hey, which one is true? Does this divinely inspire that?" No, this is Luke is just writing you and revealing just this normal human behavior and that and that they like to elevate themselves. So this this person, this you know, this com this commander here, saying that how he like, he came to rescue him because he realized that this was a Roman citizen, like that wasn't true. Remember that he only knew after the fact when Paul spoke. So he didn't think that he was protecting a Roman citizen here. Uh, but again, this is just to make um himself look good. Um but you know that's just the way human act, human people act. Again, providence here, because uh, this is how uh, the Lord is going to use even wicked sinners in sinful ways to protect godly individuals. Verse twenty-eight. And wanting to ascertain the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council, and I found him to be accused over question about their law, meaning the Jewish laws, but under no accusation deserving death or, or imprisonment. Paul, and basically he's, basically he's saying that Paul is innocent, which again parallels how Jesus was treated, right? Jesus, when when Pilate looked at Jesus, like, hey, he didn't do anything wrong. Herod even said, like, like this, oh, Pilate said that he didn't do anything wrong. Why are you one? Uh, why would you let him go? And the Jews said, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Uh, verse 30, when I was informed that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, also instructing his accusers to bring charges against him before you. Uh, so basically what he's trying to get at it was like, look, I'm just going to defer Paul and let him deal and let you deal with him. And the Jews will have to find their way to, you know, to you to talk, to present their case. Now, which again, because of their blood value, you have to wonder how long did this take and did the, the Jews even end up fulfilling this vow that they've made. Now, here's a, just a little tidbit. The Jews had way, like loopholes away from this. They, they, you know, you think you just have to wait it out and all Jews will die. And that, that is strategic and that's true. But these religious people that claim to be holy, they made, there's this thing in their own law, their own man-made traditions that says that if basically they can cancel it whenever they like. So this is a little blood pack that's, you know, could be diluted and not necessarily 
they're not going to follow through with it. Verse 31, so the soldiers in accordance with their order took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. The next day, leaving the horsemen to go with him, they returned to the barracks. When these had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. And when he read it, he asked from what province he was. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I'll give you a hearing after accusers arrive also, giving order for him to be kept in Herod's Praetorium. So this is amazing. This is like an upgrade here. He went from the barracks to Herod's Praetorium. Uh, and this is, you know, I, I, I totally believe that aside from the fact that Paul brought him, I mean, the Lord brought Paul here for his purposes, even the comfort, the need of like, okay, provision to for him to rest because he went from barracks to this praetorium which is like almost like a nar maybe our our mentality like a like a presidential suite or a penthouse or something like that he was able to have some physical rest and i, I believe paul as he's seeing all of this he's just praising god throughout the way throughout the whole journey here because it's amazing to see how God told him to take courage and that he's going to go to Rome and he's actually going there and moving towards that, uh, towards, towards that destiny. Uh, and God is so good in protecting him. Now, lessons for us today is, is to remember that as well, that when you look at your life, when you look at every good thing, even bad things that seem to be difficult, God is using everything for uh, our good. We have to remember that uh, providence is often something that we don't see, um, but yet God is not blinded to our pain. He's not. He's not unaware of our circumstances. Uh, Luther said that uh, the you know, the mystery and the sovereignty of God is like you could see uh, God's hand one <clears throat> on God's right hand, but you don't know His left hand, uh, and that's how life is for us too. We might understand, see glimmers of because of our own experiences, so we see our life moving towards a direction, but we don't know how what God is doing in the background of things that we don't see. And in every circumstance, you need to trust in God's goodness here. Uh, trust that, like as long as you're faithfully walking closely with Him, that God is providing for you, that God is using difficult circumstances for your good. You think about um, if you're a parent, if you think about your kids that are you know, acting up and struggling or health issues, whatever it may be, God is still using these things. And, and you may not fully get it, and that's not our job. Our job is to trust in the goodness of God and that he is providential. He's control over everything. And that's where we need to find our rest, knowing that he is that good God and that he is watching over us and he's working in us and through us and with people around us and things all around us in ways that we will never fully get. But when we get to glory, and even sometimes even in our lifetime, we might see how God providentially uses everything, we'll become better worshipers. So my challenge for you is not only to trust in the Lord, but even look back at your own life. What are some of the events that you see now in retrospect, how good God is? I've known a lot of people that, uh, that in a moment of the trials were just grumbling and complaining only for them to see years from now looking back and see, wow, God has spared them from further pain if they did not go to that little temporal pain. I've known people that come to saving faith because of, you know, just God's providence, just random events that seemingly uh, doesn't make sense. But when they look back, they can see how God placed certain events in their life so that they can ultimately come to know him. And I hope that when we look back at our lives, that we see God's good hand and make us greater worshipers of him. That's it for today. Uh, we're going to continue on. We have a few more chapters left before the end of the book. I am going to miss this book uh, as I finish up, maybe in a few weeks or so, or a month or two. We'll see. I hope this is helpful. Take care and have a great day.